Hey everyone, if you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us, and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com. Thanks. Hi, I'm Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, interviews with the living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. And today I'm in for a huge treat, and I hope you are too, because this is episode number 50. That's right, we've been doing this podcast for two weeks shy of a full year. And today my brother, Sam Oppenheim, who was also the very first guest on the show, is going to flip the table and interview me. So I am going to shut up now and turn over the mic to my brother, Sam Oppenheim. Hello, thank you for having me back on the show, and I'm so excited to interview you. Um, I hope this works out really well. I've got my coffee, and I, I have a, an invisible coffin, and we can have a great conversation about it. Oh, and we should probably mention that it's Thanksgiving morning at 6.20 in the morning on uh, Phoenix time zone, mountain time zone where I live, and you are in New York, and it's 8.20, so this is also a very interesting time and way to do it. <laughs> Yeah, you know, like instead of going and hanging out with our family and eating turkey, let's talk about the end of life. But, um, you know, it's it's one of your guests once said that's morbid. And you said, well, no, it's life affirming. I mean, it's really an interesting topic. And so my questions are focused a lot on like what you've learned from this project. But before I get into what you've learned from this project, which is kind of the middle of this interview, I want to start with a softball question. I I think this is a good beginning. I was thinking about how we grow up as babies and children into the world we live in. And in the Western world, which is what I know best, most of us encounter death in one of two ways as our very young brains are are developing, either as ghosts, you know, a spirit left after death, like a mystery, pseudoscience, Halloween, or as a trope, like a far side cartoon, like we all imagine sometime in our very young age, a person shaped being in the clouds, maybe they have wings or a halo or a harp. And yet these are both stereotypical representations that I bet if you interviewed children would be part of how they relate to death. But they're and they're obviously not the whole picture. But and this but the frame is here. This is the early norms, the early cultural norms, our developmental ideas of death and dying. But why do you think these tropes persist when none of your guests has really purported to believe in either of these reductive beliefs? Why do they persist? Are they useful? Uh, That's a good question. I, I listened carefully to your entire question. And the only thing that kept hammering into my head was my memory, my memory as a child of cartoons with tombstones that say RIP. And I remember like, and I guess Halloween would probably be the closest extension. And so I don't know. Um, I know that I've had a few guests mention Dio de los Muertos, Muertos, which is the Halloween sort of like equivalent in Mexico. Really, it would be more fair to say that our Halloween is in a false equivalence of their holiday. Um, and their holiday has tremendous meaning and they discuss death openly and readily with all their children. And it's early on and it's a celebration. It's a celebration of the spirits and the people around us. So as you asked me that question, instead of thinking like, why do we do it our way or what's our problem? I was thinking more about gosh, I I remember not understanding death. And then I remember learning that when I was in my 20s and and thinking that would have been better. I I don't know why tropes exist anywhere, but I think that um, I think a lot of people have a far more morbid sense of humor than they want to admit because it's not socially popular to. But I think behind closed doors, like a ton of people want to make jokes. And so I think what you spoke of is a social 
way of making reference points for jokes that won't scare the crap out of children, but can pass and be told among adults. Okay, so they're they're a useful shorthand for the way we communicate and laugh and live. Yeah, because I think like what I'm really specifically thinking of is like cartoons when like the th- the person dies or the thing dies. I'm saying thing because it's not really people; it's a cartoon, and then they show like a tombstone or like there's a funeral scene, and it's really like trite, you know, or even in like a typical 80s comedy when like the person dies it'll just cut straight to the funeral with a priest saying something like. right i mean one of our first things we did as children when we were figuring out how to videotape things was we created like a little like toy out of like clay and had it die and go up to heaven and talk to god and then go down to hell and talk to the devil like you know these tropes persist in our imagination as children and they're part of how we frame the de- ideas of death or dying i wanted to see if there was anything rich to talk about there but i like how yeah I will say that the heaven hell thing is like clearly just the Christian, like Judeo Christian type, uh, really Christian part of our culture. So like, I remember as a kid, like the idea that there's a heaven and there's a hell, but like, since our parents, cause we were raised Jewish, weren't telling us that I remember like not getting why some people thought that was true and why others didn't. I just remember like thinking that when I was young. Definitely. And I think this idea of the afterlife will come up later in our conversation, but I did want to briefly touch on what you said about the day of the dead. And just since I have like a a kind of a anthropology, like religions background, I wanted to mention that like, you know, Asian uh, civilizations, like all over from Japan, China, all the way down to Vietnam and all the way over to Thailand and through India, they have um, a lot of like ancestor, like veneration or like the ideas of like lost hungry ghosts that need to be taken care of on a holiday, you know? And so it's this idea of like a continuous relationship between the spirit world and the living world. Whereas I feel like our world, like our West Western side, like to oversimplify, it's like we take care of the dead. We, you know, we bury them and we sort of remember them. But like the, the Mexican, um, Latin American and the Asian tradition is a little more continuous. It's not as discontinuous. You know, it's kind of like the relationship between the ancestors and the living is a little more vivid. That makes sense to me. I especially, I really only know about Japan and Thailand and the examples you gave. And I know in Japan, they have tons of references to spirits and ghosts and stuff like that. Yeah. So anyway, interesting ideas there. All right. Let me ask you the, 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 the big question from your super fan. All right. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm framing it as a super fan because I'm related to you, but I've also read, watched, listened, and immersed myself in almost everything your creative energy has put out into the universe. Like, you know, your music you wrote, your weekly articles on your reflecting on your lived experience, your immersive novels. But most recently, you've taken a turn into nonfiction. I'm looking at your YouTube series, You Science, where you delved into how a curious person can inquire about themselves through their own lived experience like a self-scientific experiment. You, you know, you ate only eggs for days on end. You kept all your plastic and cardboard without sending it to municipal collections to see it pile up. But then last year during the pandemic, you made a series called Me Search, delving into 20 philosophies or ethical systems, right? It's like you're creating your own, own postgraduate seminar and studying the world's beliefs and systems. But then you shifted gears and for the past year, You've crafted 49 interviews with a huge variety of people, a cross-section of humanity. So I want to know, what have you gained in this phase of your study of the human experience? What has changed in how you see 
death, dying, philosophy, life. Like you designed this course, but you hired me to craft the midterm exam. This is the exam. <laughs> Can you cite any specific evidence by guest name or number and explain some insights you've gained, something that's changed from your study? Yes, but I'm going to try to break down your question into like several smaller questions so that my answers don't go on and on and on. So I think the first thing I want to address is Oddly enough, nothing has changed about my opinion about death because I have no opinion about death and I don't think I ever will have a strong opinion about death. But what has really changed, like profoundly, 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 I have goosebumps on my arms as I say this, is the way I approach living. It's unbelievable to me how much I have been inspired by every single guest. And I know that sounds like pandering, but Alana, my wife, who's also the producer of the show, um, she can attest that every single time I finish one, I'm like high as a kite. I walk out of the room that I record in and I'm just like full of love and like this admiration for other people and like the way we live life. And so I actually schedule one interview a week and I don't look forward to it or resent it, but I know in my heart of hearts that when it's over, I'm going to get this like boost. And so the basic thing that I've gotten from it is an unbelievable reverence for just how beautiful it is for every human to have consciousness and an ability to think about this stuff and then to think about how to make life matter more. Um, I've interviewed just so many people and like it started out as mostly friends because I didn't have a lot of access to guests and then we started branching out and I started doing strangers. And so I can definitely say that I get higher from talking to strangers than friends. But when I talk to my friends, it bonds me to them and I can't speak on their behalf, but it makes me appreciate them more and I feel closer to them. And then I kind of like know that like, no matter where they go in life, I have a feeling that I know what is driving them, which helps me relax as a friend. So that would be what I've learned. And I want to repeat though, that I have learned nothing about death actually. And I don't think I ever will. And I think that's because when I said, I have no opinion, I do have one. And if you ask me about it, I'll give it. But my point is that I don't have a strong one. I'm not like, this like, I am very sure that blah, blah, blah. But what I am becoming more and more sure of for sure, without any doubt, is that people are sick and tired of negativity and that it's bringing everyone down and it's not a secret. And it's, it may or may not be related to technology, the internet and widespread information. I really don't know. I have no guess as to why, but I can tell you that it doesn't sound like people suddenly at 30 get this way. It sounds like everyone got this way in the last five, 10 years. It, it's not an age thing because I interview people from all ages and um, it's, it's, it's totally consistent that there's just this like, uh, why do we have to talk about like how bad this person is or what went wrong here? And so I think when people are on the show, they like it because it's like an opportunity to, to be positive actually. And so I, I love the fact that talking about death leads to positivity. Um, what else did you ask me? There was something else that I think I didn't answer. Yeah. Well, I just want to say that it's really awesome to hear your response and it is uplifting and life affirming when I hear the interviews, you know, it's clear that these people and you have an interaction that is life affirming and it's not morbid. You know, I remember that guest that thought it was going to be morbid and it's not. So I, I basically wanted to know if this is the midterm you know, what have you learned? And that's basically what you answered. And then the other part of the question was, you know, like, what is the project now that you're in the midpoint? What is, what is the continuous 
aspect of the project. Like it's it's life affirming and you get a boost from it. But is this a is this a short term project for one more year or is this a long term project? Like what's your vision for the project? Like is it is it continuing to grow and help you frame your understanding and inspire you to believe in humanity or is it is it is it a short like your other YouTube video series had a beginning, a middle and an end. Is this not like that or is this like that? Okay, I think if you had asked me this question on episode three, episode five, episode 10, my answer would have been very different. But by episode 20, my answer would have been the same as it is now, which is um, ever since I was 18 and I went to college and I learned to volunteer a few times a week, I've made it my thing in life to always volunteer wherever I live. And I don't do it because I'm like this selfless, altruistic person. I, I completely do it because I feel that if I don't do it, I'm just a taker and I'm not a giver. And so I force myself to give the same way you would tell your kids to like share the cookie. So I force myself to share the cookie of my time with society. And so I, I volunteered my whole life. I did schools and education for 10 or 15 years alongside real teaching. And then when I moved to Arizona, I started doing hospice, which is what led to this this show, the theme from it, um, which is I watched people die constantly and I got to talk to them and hear their life stories and what they thought as they were dying. Some of them had dementia and couldn't talk about it, but enough were coherent and cohesive that they could talk about it. And so when that ended and I remarried and I had um, my second child, first child with my wife, and I, I ran out of time. There's no way I could do all the volunteering I was doing. It, then I would be sacrificing my dedication to my own child. So this is my new volunteer project. To answer your question, I once a week spend half an hour to an hour on the interview and then I spend another hour editing and then I spend another like half an hour on social media and things like that. And just, you know, you're our booking manager. So you get us most of our guests now, which is such a relief. Um, and actually that's the other thing that's so great about this is it's, we're a family. It's you, my brother who books and it's my wife, Alana, who produces air checks, uh, checks all the notes to make sure the grammar's right. And then another wonderful friend of mine who I met through a college friend, it's his wife. She liked the show a lot and she's a social media expert. So she started helping us with that. And then to answer your question further, I'm going to be very blunt and honest here. I would like to someday have this be more successful to the point where it's like I can advertise it and I can promote it. And so in order to do that, I have to figure out all those logistics, but I don't fear pushing this project because it's like actually good for people and it's good for myself. So I don't feel like this selfishness. Now I also write novels and I have one coming out next year and I'm going to sell the hell out of that too, but it's a little different. Like I feel very different about these two projects. So I don't think I will stop this until there's a reason I have to stop it. I think that I can afford the time, but the thing I'm not going to be able to afford as my daughter gets older. And if we have another kid is all the promotions and, and things like that. So that's why I'm saying I might have to like, not have to, I, I would look to get advertising or something or more downloads to the point where I can uh, pay someone to do that. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. And that kind of gels into the other question, which is what do you hope your listeners have gained? Because you've said now that you have gained something right? So from this project, you're, you know, how you live your life has changed a little bit. I personally, if you don't mind my personal opinion, I don't think that's going to change as much in the next 50 episodes as it did in the first 50, 50 episodes. So in other words, unlike maybe meditation where um, you said that it's like a lifelong thing and it, it gets you deeper and deeper, I think that maybe you've gained a lot yourself from this project already. 
So now that you're, you're the, the, the amount that your brain and attitude towards life and death is going to change in the next 50 episodes is probably less than it has in the first 50 episodes. So what do you hope your listeners will gain? I hope my listeners is very specific. There's two goals. One, I believe that by talking about death and even talking about suicide, for example, I'm going to help people not focus on dying and not focus on suicidal thoughts. That's my main, 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 main goal is that I think in the absence of a taboo culture that says talking about death is bad comes a lot of enriching come to Jesus moments. And I'm being pun intended um, earlier in life. So I don't think you should wait until the doctor looks you in the face and says you have stage two cancer to start thinking about why you live and who you're living for and what you want to leave on earth, if anything. And so I hope this podcast encourages people to not only think about that, but to like, really like search their soul and go back to that inner child that was so popular in the eighties, but not like the Bart Simpsons example where he does what he wants to, but the inner child who like thinks about what they want. That's all just like, you know, it's okay to, to dislike your job. If you have other things you do with your free time that you love, I don't think it matters. You don't need to love your job or your career, but if you hate your career and you also hate your home life, that's terrible. And so you should go back to the drawing board and think about life and death and figure out what changes to make. And so I think this podcast, I know it inspires enough people that I get feedback about it and I'm blown away by the feedback I've gotten. And I know that I have people who listen who I've never met and that's very flattering, but that actually matters a lot to me. I want to, I really want to help people, Sam. I like, I, I feel so corny saying it, but like, I don't see much else that matters. I turned 40 this year. And I'm so much less selfish than I've ever been. I just, I don't know. I just don't care. I want to like give, not give back. I just want to give. We're all a little bit selfish. Like when we're hungry, we want food more than we want anything else. But, but I want you to elaborate on that a little tiny bit. Okay. On the podcast, Modern Animism in the middle of November, you said that being conscious of death helps you. It's, it's pro-social. Being conscious of death helps you. Not sure that's true for everyone, but it's true for you. And you said that it makes you want to help people cross the street and alleviate suffering. Can you elaborate? Like, why does that work for you and how might it work for other people? It works for me. Okay, so now we are getting into my philosophy on death. Um, This is all you have. You, the person who identifies as Sam, me, the person who identifies as Mike, is going to die. And that thing will never, ever, ever be conscious again. And I believe that consciousness is in you, not the other way around. You are not in consciousness. And so the most special, special thing in this thing that we call existence, because I believe it's deeper and it doesn't have time. And I, you know, I just believe what Einstein said, basically, that it's an illusion that time flows and that we're in the middle of it. And so I think that talking about death should spark people to realize like, oh my God, you don't have forever. You just don't. You have this much time. And then if you believe in heaven, you still don't believe in forever here. You still believe in this other place where you go. And guess what? Heaven doesn't have your children yet because your children, God willing, will outlive you. And so like all your favorite people are not in heaven. That's a false premise. Um, All your favorite people are never always with you. And that's like what life is like. And so I've just lost enough people that were close to me. Um, the hardest loss I've ever suffered by far was a best friend of mine that I grew up with. I don't even know if best friend makes sense, but he was diagnosed with cancer at like 35 and I just spent a tremendous amount of time with him. 
until he died. And like, we both knew he was going to die. It was like super awkward because I was like trying to root him on and he was trying to pretend that he was being rooted on, but we both just knew, we just knew somehow like, this is it. This was your ticket out. And that just, I'm kind of tearing up right now. It really changed my life. Like you just, every single person is one step into the street from a car hitting them. Like there's so many creative, I used to watch six feet under and there's so many creative, weird ways to die. And again, like I have a morbid sense of humor, so be it. But, um, so I don't really believe that anyone should not talk about death. I don't believe that's true. I think that's a super, super myth. And I even believe like with my research on suicide studies and stuff that no, it's not good to just talk about it and then shut up. And as your wife, who's a public health expert told me, it's very important when you bring up this subject to give awareness to prevention and strategies for it. And so I'm, I'm all about that. And I'll make sure to include that on this episode but I don't think you shouldn't talk about it. And and she didn't say that. And no one said that. No one said like, you shouldn't talk about it. And so I think in our culture, you shouldn't like walk up to someone who's sick and be like, you're going to die soon. What do you think? Like, that's very rude. And that's very like confrontational and, and inappropriate. But if your own family member is ill and they're not facing it or they're not talking about it and you think you can help, you should get them to talk about it. Or at the very least, you should talk about your opinions because I don't think it's rude to say i think this happens i think it's rude to say this is what happens and you're wrong you know yeah that makes a lot of sense and i like it and it, it gels with the way i look at things as well um we can talk about um suicide maybe later because i do think it's something that comes up in your podcast a lot but i, I wanted to go back to the fact that being conscious of death helps you and yet some people are afraid of death and you're you're not i don't think and I found a quote from actually J.K. Rowling um, in Harry Potter, which I thought was relevant. Um, Dumbledore says to Harry Potter. Dumbledore is the grand like wizard of the school. He's like an elderly figure, like a father figure. Yeah, he's the he's the wise one. It's a very short, short quote. He says, it is the unknown we fear when we look upon death and darkness. Nothing more. And then your episode 15 guest, Chris Davies, said. Don't fear things you don't understand. And you've said that being afraid of death is not probably pro-social, but I would argue that some people could argue that a fear of death is useful, that being afraid of death keeps us alive. So why is it that you think we should not fear death? I, it's really easy for me. And, and I remember I was a grammar and English teacher for years and I'm a writer. So it's just the word choice. It's not fear that's healthy. It's awareness that's healthy. Fear is always negative because in fear, you make decisions from only one perspective, whereas awareness is a multi-perspective way of looking at things. So like the first step I think to be happy is to relax into the awareness that you don't really know what's going to happen. And you know, even people with near-death experiences, which I've, you know, I have the pleasure of interviewing a couple people with them coming up in episodes that are going to be released in the future. And like, even they don't know what happens when you die. They only know what happened to them as they almost died. They didn't die. Even if like in the hospital, your heart stops beating. If you come back, the word dead does not apply to you. You did not die. Die to me is eternal, done forever. And so Fearing that doesn't make sense to me. Fearing that would make you make decisions from an emotional standpoint and 
as every psychologist in the West and every person in the East will agree on, you should not make decisions from any sort of like vulnerable position, any sort of like insecure mindset. You should be relaxed and, and trying to think of all sides and parties. So I, I strongly encourage people to think about that, that fearing is the problem. Fear is never good. And Chris Davis, who you referenced, is absolutely one of the most fearless friends I've ever had. And he's he has suffered like bad things have happened to that guy. He didn't talk about it too much on the show, but like he knows it. I know it. He's it's not secret to him. And like, we both went through a pretty bad divorce at the same time. And so like, I know that when he said that he was really speaking from that same spot of like, sometimes the things you fear do happen and they never happen the way you feared. Never. Okay. Maybe sometimes, but <laughs> rarely. So, so what I found most interesting about the Chris Davis interview, number 15 is that he is a materialist and not a spiritualist. And he constructs a functional morality about what is helpful for him and humanity. And he says that like what separates good people from bad people is having the fortitude to not fear things you don't understand. He has created a morality without a faith and a mysticism. So if his philosophy works, then is it necessary for us to talk about the afterlife? Is it necessary to talk about what happens after you die? You know, he, he's just a materialist. Okay. No, it's not necessary to talk about what happens to you after you die. It's only necessary to talk about the fact that you will die. I would say that's very important. And the fact that you will die always leads to a moral template, always, for all humans. There's, it's impossible not to. One thing I've noticed in some of your recent guests, like... Um, Eileen Lawrence, episode 45, and a bunch of other ones, is it seems sometimes more important, not what happens after you die, which is what you agreed with recently, but it seems almost as if what's more important is that you accept you will die. And also maybe to think about how people die. In other words, your podcast started with the question of what happens after you die, but it seems more important how your community treats people who are close to death, um, who are dying and, and how you should live. So it, it doesn't really matter what happens after we die. Right. Yeah. I, I believe that is true. And I don't think I would have thought that before this project to kind of go back to another question you asked. So how should we treat the dying? Is there something we do wrong as a society that you've realized now? Cause you know, with Eileen Lawrence's interview, she really talks a lot about holding people's hands when they're passing. You've talked a lot in your other interviews about working in hospice. You know, what can we do as a society to be better in how we handle people? Oh, I have so much to say about this. I'll try to keep it short. Um, just cry more and be more like into it. Like it's like, um, don't get tough when someone's dying. It's, it's the, it's the natural reaction. And most people start to do it. They want to get tough and they want to like get facts and they want to like problem solve. It's really important to like, just step back and be like, this person is not going to be here forever. I'm going to be here beyond them most likely. So what can I do to make them feel as much love as possible before they leave? Because I think, and Eileen Lawrence was a great person to reference. She's confident she's not going to pass. And actually in the time since I interviewed her and now she has finished her last round of chemo. And so she was right. She said, I'm, I'm finishing up chemo. I'm going to be cancer free soon. And from what I can gather, I haven't spoken to her personally, but she posted something on social media that has happened already, but it didn't change like what 
she was talking about with other people and, and I presume with herself and her husband, which is like the only emotion, the only feeling people are searching for really is love. Like you said, um, Chris Davis from episode 15 was a materialist. He is, but he still would admit that like love feels great. And that like when he feels love, it's wonderful. And he has a son and he loves his son and his son loves him back. And he has two parents who are still with us. And I know he loves them and they love him. He has a sister. So I'm giving these, you know, myriad examples because I just think that that's the one big connector. And so I think the most tragic thing in the world, obviously, are young children who aren't given love. And we see how it turns out over and over and over again. And so I find it a, a true shame that when someone who grew up without love acts in a manner of being unloved, we don't realize that it's not it's not too late to be kind and love them even as you incarcerate them. I know it sounds like really messed up. And then as they die. And so like, you know, it's weird. Um, this is such a weird example. But when Margaret Thatcher died, it was the only time I've ever seen this. But people said like good riddance and people wrote like nasty things about her. Like one very famous celebrity, um, Morrissey, posted something and I just couldn't believe he said it. And then like people like hearted it. And it just blew my mind. It just blew my mind. I was like, this woman caused so many people to suffer. And I'm sure like, People in Iraq when Saddam Hussein was murdered, um, uh, Gaddafi, like these people who, again, they kill more people than you would ever think is like possible even. Uh, Genghis Khan, I think he's the greatest murderer of all time. But like, there's still like this thing about love and like forgiveness. And like, you know, I'm not Christian. I've never been Christian. But the idea of this Jesus guy who said, turn the other cheek, and then like they posted him on a cross and like killed him. And that's the symbology of like him is him dying him being murdered. It's just so interesting to me. Um, I know I'm all over the place. It's not cause it's early in the morning. I really just, I have so much to say on this and I, I know I can't do it justice, but I would just say that um, if anyone close to you is dying and even if they're not dying, just no matter how mad you get at your wife, your husband, your son, your daughter, your partner, your whatever, just remember, like, try to think in the back of your mind, like, I'm going to perish and they're going to perish and this won't matter. And, and I love it. I think it's really powerful that you feel like your lived experience has allowed you to grow in love and empathy. You're a very empathetic person. And the idea that knowing that someone's going to die and knowing that you're going to die brings out love. I'm not sure that's true for everyone, but I would be fascinated to find out if it works for your listeners. If your listeners end up loving more from listening to your podcast, that would be fantastic. You, you said recently on the interview um, with the Animism podcast that the day you were hit by a car, you wanted to forgive someone and say that you did have some love for them, even though at one point in time, you were extremely angry. And I love that idea. I mean, like, you know, you, you, we all use Genghis Khan or Hitler or whatever touchstone, in, in your case, this past sentence, you said Margaret Thatcher, as a touchstone for someone who's caused suffering. But even if someone has caused suffering, I, I love that you think that you can still not pile on the hate and look at them from a place of empathy and compassion. Um, you, know, you can still accept that what they did was hurtful, what they did was wrong but you can still have empathy and compassion for all living beings. It's a very Buddhist idea. How do you, how, other than just talking about death, how else can you gain an empathy? Wow. Um, I was going to say, have someone hurt you to the point where you contemplate ending it all. 
because that's kind of what did it for me. <laughs> um, but I don't think that's going to work for everyone. I think that usually actually makes people more angry and some people double down on their anger. So I'm not going to suggest that, but that is what worked for me was um, just going through a soul crushing experience. And um, when I came out of it, I can't, I, I, there was a point of no return and I could have gone dark or I had to go light and there was no way to stay in between the two. It was too stressful. It was too stressful to be legally trying to reclaim damages suffered from someone else. And then also to be like, no matter what my heart was broken, I'm referring to a situation with my son. We were separated, um, in a way that did not go over well for me and it wasn't, um, possible for me at the time to like solve it. And so I started to think about like <clears throat> how life sometimes doesn't have solvable issues. No one in that situation was going to be a hundred percent happy because the issue at stake was two opinions that don't have any crossover. Um, so for me that like helped because I was surrounded by people who were positive and they said, don't give up in your heart, but give up in your mind. And so that, to me was like a life-changing pivotal experience. The one you mentioned about the car accident was nine years before that. And coincidentally, nine years before that, I had a cancer diagnosis. So when I was 18, I was diagnosed with cancer. And then two months later, I found out I didn't have it. Um, and that it wasn't that it was a wrong diagnosis. It was that they're not really sure what happened. But the point is I was, I didn't have to do chemo or anything. And then nine years after that, I was hit by a car and I was in a wheelchair briefly. And if the car accident had gone slightly differently, I definitely would have died. Um, cause I did land on my head with a helmet on, but luckily I bounced three times before I did that. And then nine years later, this horrible thing happened where I was, um, separated from my son without any choice and it wasn't legal. And that's all I'll say about it, but it matters that I say those two things because I want to point out how vulnerable I was, how much I was just put in this position where, hey, you know what? Life sucks sometimes and you can't do anything about it. And so when I hear people talk about like privilege, it always strikes that chord of familiarity for me. And I feel this huge empathy for people who are underprivileged, but I don't feel like it's appropriate to be angry about it. Not because they can't be angry, but because the anger won't solve anything. And that's what I keep trying to make clear about this podcast is like, you will not care. So in that car accident example, I really truly thought I could have died today. I never thought I was going to die, but I remember like waking up in the hospital. I, I didn't pass out or anything, but like, I just remember like being in the hospital after they'd finally gotten like enough drugs in me that I wasn't like ch teeth chattering eyes in the back of my head. And, uh, the very first thought I had, as you referenced, was I need to call this person who I told basically in very certain terms, don't ever contact me again. I hate you. I hope I never see you. You know, I just like, like for me, that's the meanest thing I'd ever said to anyone. And so I just know, I know that no one on their deathbed wants the person to feel punished. I just, I'm sure of it. I would bet anything in the world on that. It's fascinating to think about this because basically what you're saying is, that your development of empathy was strongly influenced by what I'm going to call peak experiences. But your peak experiences, your narrative of your life is based partly on these suffering, these adversities, these pains. And then I start thinking about the interview with our father, who is really interested in, um, is it Masden who studied people who were healthy? Maslow. And he, he said that, you know, basically there's people who are at the top of the hierarchy of um, happiness. And it's because they don't have, they have most of their needs met, 
and then they are able to achieve, you know, this higher level of self-satisfaction and achieve more in their life. And they're, he studied people who were healthy, you know, and, and, and so basically if you're not suffering from hunger or thirst or physical pain, if you're not suffering from lack of shelter and lack of love, then you can achieve, you know, these, this highest level of human happiness, which is what he was studying. He was studying how can we make people happy? But what you're saying is, from your informed experience, the best way for you to get the empathy that you have, which I think is really important in the way you talk about and listen to other people and interview and live your life, is through peak experiences that were negative. And it's fascinating to me because I'm not sure I've had those negative peak experiences. I, my peak experiences are positive. I frame my life around my happiest moments. That's really cool, actually. I love it because you're my brother. So I'm, this is blowing my mind. Keep going. <laughs> well, like when I think about what makes me happy, you know, it's my wedding. It's my honeymoon. It's my trip to India, hiking in the Himalayas, you know, waking up to sunrise with snow everywhere and, you know, talking to a friend, you know, <laughs> like amazing meals in foreign countries, meeting a random stranger at a restaurant in, you know, Malaysia and chatting for an hour and a half you know, making a connection to someone on a ferry boat between two places in the world that I hardly could pronounce the names of. These are my peak experiences, are interacting with strangers, meeting up with friends, and it's not my suffering, but I'm not as empathetic as you. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I don't have like a real strong opinion, like from psychology or spirituality to like address this, but I would say that empathy is a thing that people do or do not possess and can work on. And I need to work on having less of a knee-jerk reaction to it and other people need to work on actually hearing it. And so I would say, um, I think the reason I focus on those experiences is or those experiences are things that made me aware that I wasn't being as empathetic as I could be. And so that's me training myself. Um, the most positive moments of my life do also define me, but they don't make me think about death. I'm wondering, do you know about tantric um, religion in India? Like, but not the sex stuff. So I think, see, that's the thing is people don't understand that um, Buddhist tantric and Hindu tantric practices include meditating on death. So I don't want to be like the anthropology professor on this podcast, but I feel like I'm going to fulfill that role for about 10 seconds here. They drink out of skulls. They hold the bones of dead in their hands and meditate in graveyards. That is a practice that has existed for 2,000 years, 1,500 years in parts of the world that are Buddhist and Hindu. And I'm wondering if this would bring about empathy. And I'm wondering if, you know, meditating on death is a way to bring about pro social behavior. And I never, or I mean, I've heard of it, you know, in, in passing in an academic sense. But now I'm wondering if it's something that other people have discovered in other religious systems and that you're promoting in your podcast. What I'm volunteering is my time to try to help others maybe hear or think about something they're not currently thinking about. And again, this goes back to hospice. When I volunteered in hospice, the saddest thing I saw, and I saw it many, many, many times, were people with their relatives who were passing who didn't want to admit they were or couldn't handle it. And then conversely, people in the ward who weren't willing to admit or contemplate what was happening. And so, you know, like I'm, again, not raised religious, don't really have a religion, 
but when the priest comes in at hospice to give last rites, it's like beautiful. And I've, I've thought now about like, if I'm ever in a hospital situation and I know my, you know, the end is coming, would I want a priest to do that or a rabbi or someone? And the answer is like, yes and no. I, I wouldn't want a religiously affiliated person to come because they're religiously affiliated. But the idea of a chaplain, like a person who just wants to help you find peace, I think that's a great idea. So, so yeah, I think like what you mentioned about Tantra and stuff, like life is a lot more fun when you don't take it seriously. It's a lot more fun. Um, and I'm not talking about like burn brightly Jim Morrison candle stuff. I'm talking about like, you know, it rains and a bird poops on your head. Just laugh. Who gives crap? <laughs> like a bird pooped on your head. It was bound to happen. Like move on with your life, you know? <laughs> well, that's really great advice. I'm not sure it connects to meditating on death, but I guess it does because you're saying that then you become invested in living your life. In living your life and, and in paying attention to what actually matters, which is like what matters is like that extra second when you hug your spouse before you part ways and like taking the time to like stick your head down and like peck your kid on the cheek before like you run out the door to go to work, you know, just like these little moments that I think we lose sight of when we're stressed. Yeah. Sometimes when I listen to your podcast and I turn it off, I think I wish I spent more time hugging my kids this morning instead of, you know, rushing out the door to work. Or I think like, oh, you know, why am I so selfish? Yeah, I do think your podcast serves a good purpose of helping remind the listener about the important things in life. Um, and you keep saying in multiple episodes and multiple guests that love is the message, the purpose. Um, you know, Eileen Lawrence agreed with you, and this is what you came to when you talked um, in the interview on the Modern Animism podcast. You know, this idea that the purpose of life is to experience and give love. And so I guess, you know, just taking from that, I feel like you, you would agree that we are all given a mother, you know, if, if we're born normally and have the gift of the mother who has not passed away, like in every Disney movie. And that love is the template for our life and our experience. If it works, then you're started off on the right path. Okay, so you say that love is the purpose of life, and we get a template for our love, um, sometimes from maybe your mother, if, if you're given a, a good birth and your mother hasn't passed away like in a sad Disney movie, and then that template for love allows you to experience your life and give love to other people in an ideal situation. Your podcast can help people experience life with more love, more empathy, and give love to people. But I don't understand, like, what about all the other things that people enjoy is is love enough you know can we all sort of meditate and love and that will fulfill us I, I i can very quickly help answer this question like very quickly um what was a goal you had when you were 18 just what's one that came comes to mind get laid i don't know <laughs> okay no that's fine okay and did you i uh, eventually i have children <laughs> yeah okay and was that enough was that your last goal ever no no Okay, so what's a goal you had when you were 25? See more of the world. Okay, did you see more of the world? Yeah. Okay, was that your last goal? No. Okay, what was a goal you had at 35? Have a family. Well, I always had that goal, but then it became more real. Okay, and it became more real. And did you get a family? Yes. Okay, and so was that your last goal ever? No. Do you see where I'm going with this? Yes. Only love is the goalless end to everything. So if you chase these thoughts to their furthest extreme, I published my first novel. People liked it. I sold enough copies that I made some money back. Wow. 
I need to publish another novel. I want more copies sold, blah, blah, blah. You know, now I'm on like novel number six and it's like my best publishing contract yet. And already I'm like, oh, I hope I get another contract after this. So my point is don't stop writing. Don't stop. I mean, this is funny, but trying to get laid, but like, you know, any example you gave, but do stop thinking this will end all of my antsiness, my anxiety, my problems, my concerns. It's not going to end anything. These are just goals you have that you have fun with. And so when I said take life less seriously, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Have fun. You're in a giant playground. You're in a sandbox. And again, I don't want to like underplay this. Some people are born in terrible sandboxes and there's no room to play. And so you mentioned like, you know, a child in a Disney movie, for example, whose mother passes away at birth. That really does happen. And people grow up in like terrible war zones and they're separated from their parents because of refugee situations. So I don't want to like make light of it and just say like, you're in a playground, do whatever you want. Like, no, of course not. But no matter where you are, you still have the gift of contemplation. You still have the gift of love. And so you can like, as long as you're with one other person, you can love them and you can try to be loved by them. But it's less important to try to be loved by them. I, I cannot stress that enough. Who cares? Just love them. Right. And that goes back to how to treat the dead and dying is give them love, compassion, empathy. Um, and I, I, I think this is a great place to sort of wrap it up. But I haven't asked you the question, what happens when you die? Do you want to answer your own question? <laughs> yeah, I was wondering. <laughs> I was actually wondering if you're going to ask it. And I was like, should I ask him to ask me that? I don't know. Yeah, because I always say, actually, on every episode, I don't get into my own opinions. And so different people suggested we do this. And I thought it was a great idea. And I think it's fun. And yeah, I think I think your guests want to hear your opinion, too. <laughs> yeah. So what do I think happens when I die? I would like to preface this with I read a lot and I write a lot and I imagine a lot. And so I think this is just like my silly version. Um, I don't really put a lot of weight into this. But I do believe that there's a soul and I believe my soul is not at all like me, not even slightly. And it's just a deeper, weirder, different thing. It's not a human. It's not anthropomorphic. And I think that soul is seated not in me, but around me. I don't think it's in me at all. And I think that when I dream, for example, my soul is not at all near me. Um, and so I think when you die, whatever it is that is aware that that's a dream and this is real or this is a dream and the dream is real, whatever version of you is able to coexist with these two weird things that constantly switch in your life. You wake up, you're alive, you go to sleep, you're not alive. You wake up, you're alive, you remember who you are, you tell yourself who you are, you remember what you're angry at. Like when you wake up, your, your brain does this amazing thing. It like refills you in on all the details. You're married, you have two children, you're child, one of them lives in Thailand, one lives here. Your um, job is this and you have work today. No, you don't have work today. Oh, today's Thanksgiving. You're going to eat food. Don't overeat. Well, maybe you can overeat, but then if you overeat, you should be more careful tomorrow. Oh, maybe you'll go to the gym. Like these thoughts are just endless and insane. And so what I'm trying to get at is I think when you die, that part just goes away <laughs> and you don't care about any of that. And what's left though, is this thing that doesn't care, but is caring. And so I think when you die, you don't regret it and you don't miss it, but you never get to come back. And so I just think that like this guy, Mike Oppenheim is fun to like play with. Like there's this thing inside of Mike Oppenheim and he's like laughing right now at Mike Oppenheim talking about it. And Mike Oppenheim is laughing at itself for talking about it. And so I have this bifurcated thing and I was actually going to write about this this week. I always can see 
the larger situation even when I'm in it. And it drives my wife insane. She said, it's so annoying when we argue because I always say, I know I'm mad at you and I know it seems like I hate you, but I don't, I love you. And I'll say that like alongside, like, I can't believe you did that. What the, you know? And like, I mean, dude, I argue, I yell, I'm not afraid to admit it. I'm like, I'm not a monster, but I'm as normal as any person you've ever argued with who raises their voice and she raises her voice. And like, we don't say permanent damaging things, which is why we have a good relationship but we certainly argue. And somehow I'm always aware that this jerk Mike is arguing. And so I'm positive that that's the, the, what happens when you die is that the thing that's aware that I'm being a jerk, the thing that's aware that I shouldn't have slammed the door, the thing that's like, I hope that person comes back and lets me like cry in front of them. And they know how angry I am. Like that little hurt, like personality in me is, is like not really important and not me. And the important thing is my soul. And so I think when you die, you just perish. You're done. And I don't think you go to heaven and I don't think you talk to other friends and I don't think you hold hands, but here's where it gets weird. I do have this like movie theater idea and I've always had it my whole life, my whole, whole, whole life. As early as I can remember, I remember thinking this, you go to a room and you have to watch it and you have to watch every second. And that includes everything you've ever done. And I'm going to be as specific as possible to make sure my audience understands how weird this experience is. You watch yourself masturbate for the first time. You watch yourself like think about like kissing a girl and freaking out. Again, I'm a guy, so I'm giving my heterosexual perspective, but whatever it is, like whoever it is that you kiss, um, let's move on to not me. Let's say you murdered someone. You have to watch that murder again, but you don't see it from the perspective of like, they deserved it or I needed to do this. You see it from a very different perspective and it is not humiliating, nor is it hurtful, but it is eye-opening. And then the parts that you learn from that are imprinted on this soul thing. And then when the soul picks its next life, which again is not linear, it just picks a life and then it goes into it. It tries to like take lessons from that previous one and then apply it to this one. And so I believe that's how karma works is karma is you requesting like new lessons that are different from the other lessons. And so I don't think it would make sense to come back to earth as a celebrity who is loved by everyone like repeatedly, but it does make sense to do it once. And so I just think like there's probably 20 million Earths. There's probably 20 million timelines. There's probably planets where you have 15 fingers on one hand and 12 on the other, and it's normal. Like I just think it's all as weird as your dreams can be. So can any reality be? Yeah, and I mean like Eileen Lawrence agreed with you that you know souls aren't necessarily only human, and and Kirk Nerming episode 49 agreed with you that we are souls here to experience life. But it's it's interesting because it's I feel like you're you're you have two conflicting ideas at the same time. One is that you are not your soul, but the other one is that your soul has karma and picked this life to experience it and gain experiences and learn from it. And it's it's hard to square that circle. Um, I do think Buddhist philosophy, going back to the original Buddha, does sort of fit that a little bit. Coming back to my intellectualizing you know, and studying in college thing. I, I took a course in this. And basically, um, this Buddhist scholar, Robert Thurman, who happens to be Uba Thurman's father, said that without a doubt, the original Buddhist teaching was that you cannot be attached to your soul. That in the same way that Buddha taught, suffering comes from attachment, attachment to gratification, attachment to joy, attachment to your bank account. You know, he said attachment to your soul also causes suffering. And he said, you should not be attached to your soul. It is not your soul. You do not own your soul. And that's close to what you're saying, which is that your soul surrounds you 
and and pre-exists and post-exists, but you is are not associated with your soul. And so I think your philosophy is very closely approaching Buddhism. And it does actually make sense, but it's very hard. It's very intellectual. And it, I don't think it makes sense to the average person, um, except on the intellectual plane. Like, how can you agree that you cease to exist when you die, and yet you are surrounded by something spiritual that is not you, but is you? It's very conflicting. I quoted Niels Bohr like two days ago, and I think it's 100% what we're talking about, which is, quote, you are not thinking, you are merely being logical. And so when you said I have an intellectual approach to it, I'm going to argue, no, it's not intellectual. <laughs> it's like actually easier to just relax into it and be aware of it. And so I had no idea that Buddhism said that, and I'm profoundly impacted by it. And you know how I told you every podcast leaves me like high and thinking about something? I guarantee you this is what I'm going to be thinking about all day. And thank you, Sam. Um, the idea that you can be attached to your soul is so profound and makes so much sense. And so I'm gonna explain it real quick, which is all attachments make no sense because you can't actually achieve a finality with any attachment. So since it's pretty obvious that you're not gonna know in this life what happens, since there's no person out there who can prove it or who has proven it, you're just gonna to cling to whatever belief makes you feel good. So Christians like Christianity, or maybe they hate it, I don't know. But my point is, if you have a religious affiliation, it's because it gels with you, or it's because you feel a guilty, necessary feeling to be in it. And so I think it's the same thing. If you believe in a soul and then you get obsessed with your own soul, and I'm, I'm going to leave my audience with this, it's going to be probably the last thing I say. If I have any one piece of advice to people, it would be get over yourself. And that includes get over your soul. Just get over it. Get over this idea that you matter more than other people. Get over this idea that you deserve something. You don't. And in that, it's so beautiful. If you can really get there and relax, it's so beautiful. Well, I do think that's a great place to end the interview. So I hope that you've helped us put another nail in the coffin. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sam. You're, I love you to death uh, and back, which is a pun and not a pun. And uh, I always love talking to you and I'm uh, thankful. I also just want to say this because it's Thanksgiving, but having a big brother was like the greatest gift I never asked for. And so um, it's really cool. And I don't know what I would have done going through life and all the hardships I've mentioned, the car accident, you flew out and you drove with me to Iowa, like um, the situation with my son, you were always there and you were always there to talk to and you also flew out and things like that. And uh, every step of the way, dude, you've been, and actually the height of my depression in college when I was given that t cancer diagnosis, you had like rescued me a year earlier and like gotten me excited to go to college in the first place. So, so I just want to end with gratitude to you of all people and for being the first guest on the show, being the person on episode 50 to interview me and for just always being my brother and loving me. And as you said, you're like my biggest fan and it's true. And uh, I don't think we will have a point where we get to discuss what happens when you die after we die because I just said that. But um, if we do, it will be fun. So thank you, Sam. Thank you, Mike. And I'm grateful for you too. I mean, I can't say enough about how important it was to me to have a sibling in my family and it informed my decision to have two children so they would have siblings. I think it's a, an interesting and important idea. You know, you said that love is one of the most important things. And so again, you know, you can, you can almost, almost everyone on the planet has parents, but not everyone on the planet has siblings and i think it's a great way to help people achieve their goals of love amen well for everyone listening at home once again you've been listening to coffin talk interviews with the living my name is mike oppenheim you've been listening to sam my brother interview me 
And uh, we would just ask you to please subscribe if you're not already and maybe pass it on to a friend, all that good stuff if you love the podcast. And this was episode 50, but we have a whole slated schedule of people to interview and release in the future. So trust me, this podcast is not ending and uh, we appreciate all of your allegiance to us and the help that you give us and support. So uh, we will see you soon.